0: And like I said, by the nature of being a woman, you're already, quote, metabolically flexible. And if we're looking at how are we gonna optimize and change body composition, which is what drives a lot of women, aside from general health purposes, you need to fuel for what you were doing. So we look at what is the hypothalamus perceiving? The hypothalamus right now in early to late perimenopause is under a lot of stress. So your baseline level of cortisol is already elevated.
1: You're already in a sympathetic drive. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy, and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my Essentially Whole Magnesium Restore Supplement, made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. Today is the day. I get to finally announce the new name of this podcast. But before I do, I just want you to know that a rebrand glow up has been needed for quite some time since I really pivoted the content and the guests about two years ago, back in 2021. See, I realized after my last book dropped in 2021, the EO menopause solution, that there were some glaring root causes that were driving so many of women's perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms. And it wasn't just hormone shifts and changes. It was blood sugar spikes, poor sleep quality, chronic stress, deregulated circadian rhythms, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, and even vasomotor symptoms like night sweats and hot flashes. These are the silent drivers of depression, fatigue, dementia, cardiac arrest, stroke, and diabetes. It's not just our hormones. It's our metabolic health that needs to be on our radar and tended to. This is why I created my metabolism and hormone reset course, because we really need to address both. We get to address both. So when I was brainstorming names for the show, I wanted to connect in with how I wanted to feel and how so many other women and people want to feel too. And I've been lucky enough to survey over 80,000 women since 2021 And the number one answer when I asked them, how would you love to feel in 30 days? The answer always is more energy. And I totally get it. Energy is the ultimate currency. During my very humbling brain healing journey, this never felt more true. My energy was zapped and all I could do for over 7 to 10 days was lie in bed. And I know we've all been there when we've been sick with a nasty flu virus, or even dealing with a bigger health issue. Our energy is often one of the first things to go and the last to return. It's often also how we know we are getting better. Energy often becomes a litmus test for knowing how good we feel. Here's something I know every woman can agree on. Stubborn belly fat can feel like the worst, especially when you've tried everything to lose it. Not to mention, belly fat can be dangerous for us too. According to a brand new study, women over 40 who have excessive belly fat are up to 20% more likely to suffer a heart attack. And no surprise, hormones are involved in belly fat production, which is actually good news because we can optimize your hormones and metabolism for a flatter stomach. And that's exactly what I'm offering to you as a free gift today. My belly slim down guide gives you three effective strategies to get rid of belly fat along with recipes to reduce bloating, balance your blood sugar, and speed up your metabolic furnace to optimize fat burning. So grab the belly slim down guide with my proven protocols and recommendations and recipes now at drmarisa.com slash slimdown. That's drmarisa.com slash slimdown, and the link will be in the show notes. So knowing that energy is something we would all love a little or a lot more of, I decided to rename this podcast Energized with Dr. Marisa. Energized with Dr. Marisa embodies how so many of us want to feel when we wake up and as we navigate our days, whether it's with work, family, or the countless other things that we have on our list to handle. My intention for you always is to feel energized. And as a way to celebrate my rebranded podcast, I am doing a pretty sexy giveaway. And all you need to do to quickly take a moment to enter to win is pause for just a second, subscribe to the show, and rate the show. And I'm talking about just leave a rating. You know, at the very bottom, if you're listening to this on iTunes, you can scroll all the way to the bottom of the podcast page and you'll see an opportunity to rate the show. It'll be a five-star rating system. And then you can quickly just pick the stars and move on. Or you can take a moment and actually leave a review. It's totally up to you. Now, I'm not going to lie. I do have a big intention to hit a thousand reviews this year. And right now I am currently at 816. So I would be honored for you to rate the show. And then Just go to the link in the show notes for this episode and enter to win. I'm going to be giving away Apple AirPods Pro so that you can listen to this show or any show wherever you go. I don't know about you, but I am constantly listening to audiobooks and podcast shows, doing all the things that I do in my life. And I find that having AirPods make it so much easier. And then I'm also going to be giving away three free lifetime access memberships to my Metabolism and Hormone Reset course. This is valued at $147, and the Apple AirPods Pro are valued at $250. All of the gifts I'm giving away are valued at over $690. Now, the reason why I just talked about iTunes is that iTunes is the gold standard for spreading the word with reviews, but feel free to leave a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, just by participating and entering into the giveaway, you'll instantly get my top 11 supplements for optimal hormones, which is one of my favorite guides to give away because it really gives you the nuts and bolts of what you need to support your metabolism, support your mitochondria, boost your energy levels, and support your hormones, especially as you navigate through the transition of perimenopause, menopause, and beyond. Again, the link to enter the giveaway is going to be in the show notes, so don't miss out on this 4-day giveaway. It's a pretty short giveaway, but I promise that there are some fun prizes and by showing up and rating the show and subscribing to the show, not only will you get insights into epic interviews because I have such an incredible lineup of guests coming up in the next coming months. I have been working so diligently to get some epic guests on the show that I know that you're going to love, but also There are so many women who are looking for this kind of information. They're looking for answers that are struggling with disruptive symptoms. And by reviewing the show, we really open the door for them to find the show, to find interviews with women and researchers like Dr. Stacey Sims. So definitely take a moment and let me know, what do you think of the new show name? Are you loving, energized with Dr. Marisa? Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Dr. Marisa. You can just send me a little DM and do you love the name? Are you kind of eh about the name? I would love to know. When I've asked tons of friends and family members about the rebrand of this show, they loved this name. We had about 10 names that we were considering. This is the one that was like unanimously the one that everyone loved And it's the one that felt, you know, when like something feels so right, that was this name. So I hope that you love it as much as I do. And I hope that you continue with me on this beautiful journey as we navigate the way that our bodies change and shift as we are always optimizing and making sure that not only do we feel good in our body, but that we can show up in ways that feel the best for us. All right, now I want to pivot to the remarkable guest that I have on today that fully embodies feeling energized at any age, Dr. Stacy Sims. For almost every woman, even active women, perimenopause and menopause can hit hard. Mm, and goodness knows, I have felt that. Overnight, it seems your body doesn't feel like the one you know and love anymore. You're battling new symptoms, might be gaining weight, losing endurance and strength, and taking longer to bounce back from workouts that used to be so easy. That's probably one of the hardest things I realized is my bounce back, right? Bounce back from having a glass of wine, bounce back from not getting enough sleep, not having the bounce back of a hard workout, right? You'll just notice that that resilience is a lot less than it used to be. And that things that have always kept you fit and healthy just seem to stop working the way that they used to. But as I've shared here on many episodes, and even in my most recent book, The Eomenopause Solution, menopause doesn't have to be the end of you kicking butt at the gym or building muscle or even maintaining a healthy metabolism or feeling energized. Once you understand your physiology, you can work with it, not against it, to optimize your health and even reverse your inner age. Which again, if you want to learn more about reversing your inner age, definitely go back and check out Dr. Kara Fitzgerald's interview literally just last week on her groundbreaking research on how to do just that. Now, today I want to dive even deeper into what we can do to protect our most valuable asset, our energy and our health, during a time when our bodies are changing without permission, putting us at greater risk for chronic disease. And The amazing woman to shine a spotlight on how we can kick butt and feel great during menopause and beyond is Dr. Stacey Sims. We're going to dive deep into her cutting-edge research on women's physiology and how we can adopt crucial lifestyle strategies so that we don't have to become a statistic because we are so much more than that. You are so much more than that. And this information, to me, is more relevant today than ever before. With two-plus million women every single year entering menopause in the U.S., and 1.1 billion women who will be menopausal around the world by 2025. That's like two years from now. And even more important to note, that the average woman can expect to spend approximately 50% of her life in perimenopause and postmenopause. And I don't know about you, but I'm already one of those women. Now, before I bring on the amazing Dr. Stacey Sims, who I've been so excited to interview over the past year now, I want to quickly sing her praises. Dr. Stacey Sims is a forward thinking international exercise physiologist and nutritional scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. With the unique opportunities Silicon Valley has to offer, during her tenure at Stanford, she had the opportunity to translate her early research into consumer products and a science based layperson's book called Roar, written to explain sex differences in training and nutrition across the health span and lifespan of women. Both the Consumer Products and the book challenge the existing dogma for women in exercise, nutrition, and health. This paradigm shift is the focus of her famous Women Are Not Small Men TEDx talk, and her newest book, Next Level, focuses on how women can navigate menopause with strength, endurance, and energy. Let's welcome Dr. Stacy Sims to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Stacey Sims. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm so excited that you're here. And we are gonna dive in to some incredible research and really your knowledge base when it comes to women navigating perimenopause and menopause with strength, grace, and power. That is my intention for today. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to first start with asking you what was that defining moment, Stacey, when you knew you wanted to help women work with their unique physiology to perform at their very best. There
0: are two Pivotal pivotal points that I remember, and they're very very close together. And they were in undergrad. One when I was a participant in a metabolic lab, and after doing all the standardization and everything you're supposed to do, they threw my results out. And I was like, "What is going on there? Why did you throw them out?" And it was, "Oh well, they're an anomaly. We can't use them because they're too different." And I was the only woman with three other guys, so I was like, "Okay, well." that's strange. And then as I started digging a little bit more, a few weeks later, I was, oh, well, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. And this came from a male professor. And I was like, what? Huh? Excuse me? Because when you start looking at it as an athlete and as a very inquisitive 17, 18-year-old wanting to know more about me and wanting to help my teammates, to have someone who was in a power position say, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. And I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. We need to know about women. So that really was the start of it all. I don't want to remember how many years ago, but many years ago.
1: Gosh, I bet that was just a gut punch moment. And just, you know, I feel like it's playing out in so many areas, even within, you know, our healthcare systems of just like, you know, we just need to study men more. That's how we'll understand women. And someone to boldface say that to you. Ooh, It was just... Blase
0: about it too. And it's like, well, maybe back in those days as I date myself, it wasn't really thought about, but in actuality, it should have been because you don't say, or well, I guess maybe if you think that, but as a scientist, you don't exclude a population because you don't know enough about another population. To me, that's like saying, why do you want to study cardiovascular disease? We don't know enough about diabetes. They're related, but they're not the same. So,
1: yeah, it was frustrating. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm so, I mean, I'm honestly grateful that he said that because it has sent you down this path. And then what was the second, what was that second moment for you? Oh, they were both like, one was
0: my lab results being sent out and saying that. And then the follow-up was, why do you want to study women we don't know enough about?
1: Well, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that these moments happened. And I want to I want to dive into roar specifically because I have a feeling was that really where you started your research was looking at, you know, our physiology based around our menstrual cycle to see how we could train, basically adapt nutrition and training to really get the best out of our out of our our, you know, personal bests, out of our races, whatever we were doing in life. Um was that where you started initially?
0: As I would say there's a kind of a backstory to that because War came about after I had really gotten out of full-time academia. So like through my academic career, really trying to understand things like overtraining in women, hydration and nutritional differences in women, heat, altitude, all the exercise physiology. And I was a thermoreg physiologist looking at gut and fluid balance and nutrition and that kind of stuff. And then when I got to Stanford, it was becoming more of a pelvic, public health aspect where I had one foot in human performance and one foot in public health. And in that was the women's health initiative. And then when I got pregnant and was coming towards the end of my pregnancy, I had the opportunity to start my own company. And so I got out of full-time academia to launch a sport nutrition company with some friends and a VC and that's when I started getting more and more into industry and met Celine Yeager. And Celine and I had worked on some stories throughout the years through her Fit Chick Cycling and Bicycling articles and things. And then she's like, you know what? You have so much knowledge around this. We need to put it in a book. And I didn't even think about a book. I was like, I'm just doing seminars, I'm doing webinars, I'm trying to get people to understand that women's physiology is different. But I was doing it from the wrong platform. I was doing it from the platform of a sport nutrition company and we know that marketing is stronger than science so people like you're just another sports nutrition company what is this so she's like no this is real science we need to put it in a book so that's how Roar became Roar is she pitched it and they're like this is great and I was like oh my gosh there's so much information to put in here and how yeah so we started with If someone were to come and say, I know absolutely nothing about what you do, states. what do you do? And the very first thing is explain why women are different from men, not only sex differences from birth, but then we go through all these hormonal changes, puberty, we go through our reproductive years, we go through pregnancy, we go through perimenopause, we get to menopause and we don't age in a linear algorithm like men do, right? So we have all these different changes to our bodies and how our bodies respond to external stress. And not acknowledging that in the biomedical space, not acknowledging that in the coaching space, to me felt very unequal and just really not justifiable. So bringing it out and saying, hey, look at all of this stuff, you can improve the health and wellness of your athletes and of you know people who are just trying to get healthy if you were to pay attention to who they are from the very cellular level.
1: And You know, since Roar and even Next Level, have you found, I will say, and some of my audience members are still, you know, they're in CrossFit, they're running marathons, but some of my women are just trying to hit their 10,000 steps per day. And so what I loved a lot about Next Level was really, really meeting women where they're at in terms of their shifts and changes, But then, what I also loved about Roar is there's so many of us that are, you know, pushing and trying to become strong and trying to hit PRs, whether it's on a Peloton or it's in a marathon or a half marathon or a triathlon. And one of the things that you say that you say a lot, and I I feel like you have to probably say it often, is that we that any phase in our cycle, I know, because we can really give ourselves a hard time during certain phases of our cycle, whether it's at the end of the luteal phase or right at the start of our menstrual cycle that, you know, maybe those aren't the best times to hit PRs, or maybe that's not the best time to really push ourselves. And what you demonstrate is that it's the consistency of training. And if we're able to really work with our physiology through training and nutrition, if that race lands on day 28 of your cycle or day two, you know, (laughs) nobody trying to really run on day two of their cycle, but you know, you still have that opportunity to hit that PR, to really push and, and excel past what you think you're capable of on that day. And cause I, I bet a lot of women do feel like maybe, man, if a race lands on one of those days, I'm screwed. Like it's not going to happen for me. And I see a lot of that in the book and even in social for you is that you really explain that we have that opportunity to do so. Exactly.
0: Because part of it also is trying to break the sociocultural norms around the menstrual cycle, right? Because we've all been pigeonholed to believe that we are weak, delicate flowers when we start bleeding. And all the, you know, conversations have always been, ooh, it's that time of the month. So there's all this negative connotation, which then feeds forward to as a woman's feeling like, oh, I should feel bad. I shouldn't try to extend myself in these times. But when we really look at physiology, it's like, no, that's crap. We can actually leverage what our body's doing for for us, which then feeds forward to, like you said, there is never a bad day for performance. If we understand what's going on so we can be prepared, but also in a training scope, which is different for performance, really leveraging the days where we can have really high stress days and adapt well to it. And then backing down when we know our bodies don't feel like we can and we shouldn't be pushing at But again, every woman's individual, so understanding your own cycle really gives you that empowerment and vantage for training, which then feeds forward to any day of performance.
1: I would love for you to share a little bit about – and I've I've spoken about this on the show and had other conversations, but I think it's just a nice reminder for the women who are cycling right now when they're training – you know, whether it's just to get stronger, build muscle mass, or to just kind of when we can push the bounds. Can you share a little bit about based on your research, when we do have that ability to kind of push harder, to kind of really do those lift heavy stuff, let's, you know, lift the heavy weights. <laughs> and, um, and maybe we're, you know, we're really pushing our nutrition a little bit, we have the ability to just be more outward focused and push versus when we kind of get to Just be mindful of the changes when we're kind of in a high hormone state where we may want to eat differently. We may not be pushing those intense workouts as often. Can you share a little bit on that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of chatter recently from the sports science world that, you know, you can't really phase-based train and you shouldn't really pay that much to the menstrual cycle. And I sit back and like, are you kidding me? Like one, it opens up the conversation and two, you can't say that there are times in my menstrual cycle when I am bulletproof all the time, you know, and we know this.
1: We know this. Every woman knows this. I know what day I'm on just by how I feel right now. Right, exactly. And there are some men who are involved in the conversation
0: who, who also are like, yeah, there's definitely an effect. So when we look outside of the sports science literature, where there's better methodology and there's greater population, we see all of these inherent things that that we can use to leverage our training. So in the low hormone state, meaning like from day one all the way through ovulation, this is where we see our core temperature is lower, we have um, better access to carbohydrate, we have better mojo, we have more ability to withstand infection and bacteria and virus we see that we have better muscle repair and recovery and so we're looking at all these scopes around it and we also see like our heart rate is lower resting heart rate is lower our respiratory rate is lower our hrv is higher so we're more resilient to stress then we get to the ovulatory period and so that's you have your estrogen surge and then a dip So some women feel bulletproof right around ovulation because of that estrogen surge. Some feel bulletproof a few days later. So this is where we're starting to see this transition where we're seeing a change in our metabolism where we're starting to rely more on free fatty acids because now carbohydrates being pushed to the endometrial lining. We're seeing changes in our motivation because we're having changes in in our neurotransmitter and sensitivity to that. We're seeing changes in our gut microbiome that affects brain and cognition. We're seeing changes in our core temperature that can make us feel hotter when we're at a certain workload versus when we're in the low hormone phase. So that can kind of impede where we are. And we also see things like a change in our motivation. We see a change in our ability to withstand stress from an immune perspective because now we're more pro-inflammatory. So when we're looking at how are we training, we know that in that low hormone all the way through ovulation, you have that opportunity to push hard and cover well. And then it's about seven days before your period starts. This is where it becomes very gray area because we have a peak of the hormones and then they start to drop. And as you're having that massive transition from high to low, we're again seeing these rapid changes. So women may feel great because those hormones haven't quite dropped yet, or they might feel really kind of, oh my gosh, I feel awful. What's wrong with me? Because those hormones are high and in that transition. So this is where you want to know how your body responds to deload. So we go, go from high high pressure down to that deload across the menstrual cycle.
1: Mm, Okay. That makes so much sense. And that's when we really, again, our nutrition changes a little bit. We're not probably pushing those big, big heavy lifting workouts and you just really got to listen to yourself. I know for me, come day seven, day six before my period, it's a very different ball game.
0: Where I'm always like, why did I have such a great workout? I feel fantastic.
1: Oh, it's the day before my period starts. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. <laughs> right. And if we're all unique and different. I think we just really need to know our bodies. And I think one of the big things that you really advocate is really know your cycle and know how you respond in the phases of your cycle. You know, these may be, you know, based on the literature, even general trends, what we know to be true, in particular, like, you know, that raise in testosterone and estrogen that we're going to hit closer to that, uh, that ovulation. But also, as you mentioned, a respiratory rate, heart rate. And heart rate variability, like these are major players too in our stress resilience. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing I notice is I have way more stress resilience in that follicular phase than I do in the luteal phase.
0: Yeah. And it feeds through not just through training, but for like work purposes as well. So you have X amount of energy and you, if you're expending it too hard in training, then the rest of the day you're kind of like, uh, so a lot of women will try to push too hard when their body isn't as stress resilient. And then they're wondering why the rest of their day, they're like, I don't have any
1: resilience. You got nothing. You got nothing for your family. You got nothing for your kids. You got definitely not nothing for your partner. Don't like, don't come with me with, oh, you didn't go pick something up at the grocery store. Like, mm -mm. yeah, you got nothing. I want to um, walk into a little bit of the Next Level book, and I want to share a little bit of a personal experience for myself. So I I started this year, um, I'm 44 in a month, so I started this year at 43, and I decided it was time for me to really lift heavy stuff. I had just read Next Level in December, and one of my best friends is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Um, I hired her personal trainer here in Encinitas. We both have lived here, um, and I decided it was the time, And and at the time, I was clocking workouts every, almost every day, not, not the heaviest, heaviest workouts. I was walking about 18,000 steps a day. And metabolically, I had phenomenal uh, insulin sensitivity. My blood sugar levels looked great. Everything on my whoop strap looked good. And I was like, it's time. This is the year where I, I'm finishing breastfeeding. I have a toddler. So I, I had a, I had a baby in, in early perimenopause. And I was like, but this is the year I want to show him. How his mama shows up in the world, like how how strong and, and amazing she is, how she can sprint with him down the line. So I hired this trainer and um also I have Hajimotos and, and, and I manage that as well and I feel well. But I hired my this trainer and we went in straight crossfit, I mean like next level CrossFit. And one of the things that have gotten me in trouble over the years is overtraining. This isn't the first time this has happened to me. And I accidentally overtrained and landed myself in a hole, like within three months, I just wouldn't quit. I just was like, I committed to 30 sessions. I'm doing 30 sessions. And like, I kept tailoring other workouts, but you know, at 43, you know, even with everything else looking great, the overtraining just, just pummeled me. Actually, I haven't worked out in since the, since the end of May, cause I haven't recovered fully from it. And so I, I'd love for you to speak into cuz it's this has been I you know I told you about my brain injury as well it just happened to happen a couple of weeks after I stopped working out but this has been the opposite of what I thought was going <laughs> to happen to me I just imagined myself at this point in this year stronger having more endurance having power and and having a resilience that that was just m- a much bigger level than I came in at the at the start of 2023 and so I know that there are a lot of women listening to this who've had the same experience, who have, who thought they were doing all the right things, who were looking at everything, were charting stuff, and then ended up in this hole like I am in. And I would love for you to speak into kind of what have you seen in the research or even in your own personal experience working with athletes on how to not overtrain? And then how do we recover from overtraining? I often find it takes me almost three months to recover from when I get into some deep trouble like this.
0: Yeah, so we see like there's a, this fine line between overtraining and relative energy deficiency in sport, right? And so what happens a lot in women who are in their late 30s, early 40s is they either get super motivated because they know that, you know, perimenopause, menopause is down the line. Or they're already starting to see changes in their body and they're like, I don't like this. So then they double down, right? And they go too hard, too fast and don't fuel for it. And they don't have adequate recovery. So if you're adding something in that's really intense, the idea is actually you have to drop all the volume. So intensity supersedes volume. And if you're doing something super intense, knowing that your body is really only capable of handing three at the maximum high intensity sessions will be. So that's including heavy lifting because it's heavy on the central nervous system, as well as true high intensity interval training or sprint interval training. And then things like heavy CrossFit workouts the beauty about CrossFit is it's so diverse, but the bane of CrossFit is it's so diverse that movement economy is not there for all of the movements. So people try to do movements that they're not skilled at too hard, too fast, and they go the next day or the day after and they're different movements. So they don't connect the fact that their body's still smashed from the other workout. So, when we're looking at that high perspective, and women are coming in, and athletes are guilty of this too. So, like professional athletes are guilty of this too, is they're not taking that holistic look down to be like, okay, I'm adding this in. My fuel intake needs to increase, and I need to drop the volume and have more recovery through it. Because we're also conditioned to do more is better, more is better, more is better. If I do, especially women.
1: Especially women who are in perimenopause and stuff is hitting the fan. Like like you said, it, we double down. Like women are like, whoa, 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 what's happening to me? How do I fix this? Yeah, exactly.
0: And a lot of them are like, oh, I'm putting on fat, so I must be eating too much and not training hard, right? So then it's like we cut the calories, we read these trends about fasted training, we read these trends about time-restricted eating, and not realizing that a lot of that, if not all of the literature, is based on non-active individuals, which is a different
1: population, non-active, obese individuals. Exactly. And, you know, even knowing that I still did it. Ah, <laughs> come on. I mean, <laughs> I, know.
0: I think we've all tried it at some point when we didn't know better, like back, back in my thirties, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, I can do fasted training. Not because I wanted to do fasted training, but I was like, it's
1: more convenient. It's convenient. I'm a mom. Again, you know, I'm just trying to get it done. Yeah. It wasn't on purpose, but I thought I could get away with it.
0: Yeah, and then you realize how you can't because all of a sudden your thyroid takes a hit. You're putting on body, you can't recover. You're not sleeping well. My
1: antibodies went up, everything. Yeah, all of those things, yeah.
0: Yeah, so when I start talking to women about this, I'm like, first we look and be like, this is a lifestyle change, it's not a training block. So if we're going after a lifestyle change, then it's slow implementation with the eye. to you wanna be able to do this when you're 80? So if we're going to implement heavy lifting, we're going to phase our way into it. So we know that your mechanics are good. We know that you know how to handle the barbell. We know that you're not going to get injured. How is your foot placement? So it's kind of that movement screen and working within that. And because they're not actually increasing the load, but they are increasing the amount of time that their body is moving in a different fashion, we do decrease volume in other places. But that connection there isn't quite apparent for a lot of women because they don't feel smashed, but their body is having to move in a different, different pattern, which is a challenge on movement economy, which is very central nervous system heavy. And we don't want to overtax that because that feeds forward to overtraining and under recovery.
1: Yeah. It wasn't until I started getting migraines the day after these training sessions that I stopped. That's how bad they got.
0: (laughs) Oh no, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) It's okay. I mean, it's a great, it was such a beautiful lesson for me, you know, and I I cannot wait. Not resistance training for this long is just mind boggling to me, but it's just, I just can't yet. And I'm just hoping by the time I turn 44 in September that I will get to start integrating some of this in. But I just, I wanted to share my story and I I want, because I know that you've looked at this so much and it's in the book that I wanted you to just shed some light on it because I know a lot of us are fasting. We're doing early time restricted eating. We are pushing the envelope. We're, we're doing heavy sprints, you know, heavy, heavy workouts. And, and we're seeing this detrimental effect. We're not getting the results we want.
0: Right. And part of the fasted is the fact that one of the major components of the idea of fasting in active people is to increase, quote, metabolically, metabolic efficiency, meaning that your body can switch between carbs and fat. But for women, we're different setup from men. So if we do stuff that are fasted, then glucose sensors in the liver is like, hey, wait a second, not enough stuff coming in. So it tries to break down enough glycogen to increase blood glucose circulation. But at the same time, it's doing that; it's shutting down the body's ability to pull free fatty acid into the mitochondria. So then you become more reliant on glucose. So if you actually add some food in, then the glucose sensors are like, "Yay, we have some cool um, food coming in; we have glucose." And so does the hypothalamus. So then the mitochondria actually kick in. Whereas men, it's different because they don't have those sensors that are driven by estrogen and other glucose. Sensing mechanism, sensitive, yeah, right. So, like men, they can do that, and they do benefit. They increase mitochondria capacity, but women, no, by the nature of being who we are from birth,
1: yeah, reproductive. It's about our reproductive system. It's about the fact that we bear children. You know, the body is protecting us. Yeah, so we don't have enough food coming in
0: for ourselves, and our body's definitely not going to allow you to reproduce.
1: I would love to kind of transition over to talking about fueling for our bodies when we're training. Because I know that a big part of this transition, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, is lifting heavy weights. We we need to maintain that muscle mass. We need to hopefully build some muscle mass in the process, um, but we need to do it in a way that's going to support our bodies in this transition. And so would you talk to a little bit about, I really did really appreciate your philosophy on fueling and nutrition for women specifically, even in next, especially in next level, because I feel like that's where it gets so tricky for so many of us. Yeah.
0: And like I said, by the nature of being a woman, you're already quote, metabolically flexible. And if we're looking at how are we going to optimize and change body composition, which is what drives a lot of women, aside from general health, you need to fuel for what you were doing. So we look at what is the hypothalamus perceiving? The hypothalamus right now in early to late perimenopause is under a lot of stress. So your baseline level of cortisol is already elevated. You're already in a sympathetic drive. So if you are doing fasted training or not fueling and recovering from your training, the hypothalamus is going to be like, oh my gosh, we're under more stress. So you're going to see even more negative changes. So if we are fueling for what we are doing and recovering from it, it helps drop baseline cortisol because you don't have as strong cortisol response during exercise, which is a good thing. And we also see that if you have fuel available, then you can hit intensities that you need to. And then when you're looking at fueling post-exercise, you get out of that breakdown catabolic state, which then feeds forward to get you out of any perception of low energy availability. And if you're looking to really drop down body fat we know that protein is essential you have to have a higher intake of protein you have to fuel in and around your training and then in the evening close to bed that's when you're taking away maybe 150 calories so you might drop it from your meal your last evening meal you might not have a snack but it's just a small amount of calorie restriction away from training one, it works with your chronobiology. Two, it works with where the hypothalamus is perceiving nutrition. Three, it works with your gut as well, because we know that strength training and high intensity work changes gut microbiome for positive to like feed for for better um, brain health, for better metabolic health. And it all comes down to how are we fueling for the stress at.
1: Okay, that makes so much sense. And I want to just kind of spend a little bit of time on. Well, actually, before I jump into stress, because I want to spend some time on stress. <laughs> oh, everyone's feeling that. And especially, you know, I think the, one of the biggest things that women start to notice, especially in perimenopause, probably one of the first symptoms, besides maybe some thing, weight is not as easy to maintain. But I would say that the other symptom that I see the most in women, especially as they're navigating kind of early perimenopause, is going to be that less, that less stress resilience, that they find themselves feeling less less resilient in a lot of ways and in their mental co- bandwidth and capacity you know like that the, the decision fatigue that they're having to always make all these decisions starts to wane as well like they start to have more of that and so i really want to saunter over there in just a second but before that i know you're talking about protein and i know women are wondering well how much protein am i supposed to be eating cuz you know obviously there's a lot of conversation around that is do you have a recommendation for the amount of protein if we are Consistently, we're working out, we're doing, we're, we're doing resistance training throughout the week. You know, we are in that state of training our body. What is your recommendation around protein?
0: We just published a position stand on this through the International Society of Sport Nutrition. So we're looking at perimenopause, postmenopausal women. And because we become more anabolically resistant to both exercise and protein, we need more. So we're looking at 1.8 to 2.0 grams per kilo. So that's a little over that one gram per pound. And ideally, we are having it at regular intervals. So we say, you know, throughout the day, 30 to 40 at each meal, around 15 to 20 at each snack. And if you're specifically going in for a resistance training session, you want to have at least 15 grams of protein before that resistance training session. So if you're looking at, you know, a little bit bigger than palm size at each meal, then you're already up to 120 over three meals, right? So it's not that much more to get through snacks and you're not thinking just meat. You're not just thinking about fish. You're thinking about all of the things, the typical protein intake. Plus you can look at sprouted grain breads. You can look at chia seeds, nuts, legumes, everything around can contribute to that protein intake.
1: And I love that you talk about that because I know that you spend time on gut health in the book and a lot of the kind of the plant-based you know, ways that not only we can get protein, but also fiber, you know, it's helping to feed the microbiome, which I really appreciated in your book. I really, really appreciated that because we are, we are, you know, I think it's 90% of women, maybe a little bit more, um, don't meet the adequate needs of of fiber every single day. And I think it's 90, 97% of men, but then also women aren't meeting their needs of protein either.
0: No. And the thing about it is we have this significant change in gut microbiome diversity that's really apparent in the four to five years before that first point in time menopause. So in late perimenopause, we see this incredible shift in the diversity to be more obesogenic. So, you know, like women are already struggling with body composition and they're already tired, but wired. And it has to do with a lot of the gut changes because we don't have as much estrogen and progesterone then we don't have as many of the different kinds of bugs that deconjugated in in the gut before it shoots it back out. So increasing the diversity through high intensity work, resistance training, and a very big um, focus on fibrous fruit and veg and fermented foods is so essential To put you on the right foot to then be able to see changes in body composition, improve brain health, get rid of the brain fog and all of the menopausal symptoms that come with it. Because once you have that really good sound gut health, your body's like, okay, now I can deal with the stress of these changing formats.
1: I agree. Gut health is metabolic health. It is. Absolutely. And so often we don't, we don't put the pieces together. You know, when I talk about eating metabolically healthy meals, it, fermented foods and fiber are go hand in hand. Like, it has to be a yes and. But when I think about, you know, improving our metabolism and in- increasing better metabolic health, it's it's always gut focused. Like, how do we feed the gut to, you know, everyone thinks, it's, you know, I, I know that we have dismantled the calories in versus calories out, but I still think that that's still existing and people don't realize that there's so much more to it particularly around the gut as we move forward?
0: Yeah, to the point where I'm seeing more and more journal, published journal articles coming out about ultra-processed foods, where people think that they're getting all their nutrition because they've had um, you know, athletic greens and they've had this protein bar and they've had all these other things that contribute to quote, nutritional needs. But when you're looking at how ultra-processed they are, they do nothing to promote gut health. And so people are ending up being sick anyway, even though they think that they're taking care of their macro and micronutrients.
1: Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause there's a lot of ways that we're trying to get these fast, quick fix to meet our protein needs or to meet our, our veggie needs or whatever, you know, whatever those things are so we can do it quickly and keep it moving. Yes. All right. I wanted, I do want to saunter over to stress. Yay. My least favorite experience, but my most favorite topic. It's been my least favorite experience as well. You know, I, I find that the wheels just fall off, you know, as I'm getting closer and closer to my period. And I'm really mindful about that. And there's a lot of things that I'm doing to set myself up for success. But I watched my mom suffer from really severe PMDD in perimenopause. And I mean, I know I, I watched, you know, and I, I supported her in the process, but also just, I was like, gosh, please don't let that come for me. But you know, in a way, and I've been really honest with her about that as well. I don't think she wishes that on either of her daughters, but just being really, really mindful about what these next seven years look like for myself and for so many women heading into menopause right now, where they're noticing that the wheels are falling off and they're not able to keep it together when it comes to handling the million of tasks that they are doing for themselves and their family and their community every single day. And so I would love for you to speak into I mean, obviously we know it's hormone changes that are, that are really shifting for us and deregulated cortisol, probably also circadian rhythm deregulation. Probably a lot of these things are playing a role and they're all just kind of hitting all at once. But what, what have you seen that has been really profound in helping women to navigate this time and helping to give us a little bit of kind of breath or even just modulate that stress response system so that we don't feel like we're crazy and losing our mind?
0: There are three things that I have women do. One, get their vitamin D levels checked. Because when we see a drop in vitamin D, we see an increase in PPMD, we see an increase in PMS, and especially in perimenopause because of the change in our um, estrogen and progesterone and the way it affects our dopamine and the serotonin. So vitamin D is super, super important to get checked. The other big thing is really trying to increase parasympathetic drive every day. And not only is it feed forward to like, what are you doing for a 10 minute session in the day to really like bring down and breathe and just like, I know for me, I compromise a little bit of sleep, which isn't great, but I need 15 minutes before noise hits me. So I get up before my family just to have that 15 or 20 minutes of absolutely no noise. Because when the noise starts, it just, I just like, if I don't get that in a day, then I'm so sympathetically wired that its I just can't handle a lot of stuff.
1: Well, And it doesn't stop. Yeah, and it doesn't stop. So it's trying to
0: find that 10-minute segment where you can just just really recenter and breathe and remember what that feels like. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's that yogi mindful stuff. It's like, well, no, we can look at it as you can have episodes of yoga nidra, non-sleep deep breaths. You can have 10 minutes of just sitting and staring out the window or breeze coming to something that's going to center you to bring you back to present. So remember that, and that can increase your parasympathetic drive. So that when you are in bed and you're trying to sleep and you're trying to get into that parasympathetic response for good quality sleep, you can bring yourself back to that moment to be able to calm down and instigate more of that parasympathetic. So we do a lot of that mindfulness and bringing up the parasympathetic drive. With that, we also see L-theanine. So L-theanine is a You know, it's an amino acid. It's a non-protein amino acid. It's super important for increasing alpha wave production in the brain for you to get into parasympathetic and to get into good sleep. So those three things are how I start. Women on this whole, let's get out of the tired but wired. Then we can also look at different adaptogens to bring in. But those tend to be the three big things to get more control on autonomic nervous system, better control of sleep and sleep quality which then allows people to feed forward and be more stress resilient.
1: I I love the, obviously the mindfulness and just kind of retraining that parasympathetic so that when you need to go to sleep, you're able to do so. It's training the brain, so to speak. And it's clearing the mess out of there. Like, you know, just, just giving yourself an opportunity to just be present and it just kind of i would like just like all the 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 stress cobwebs that are just building up in there i love that and then with L-theanine i actually i wrote a book on matcha a long time ago and the benefits of L-theanine but do you recommend L-theanine in a supplement or do you recommend it in something like matcha you, where, do you is it getting where you fit in get it where you fit it in but a lot of women are used
0: to taking pills we're in a very pill happy society right i mean i default to Rhodiola in a capsule and L-theanine in a capsule because I know that I'm getting the right amount. It's easy; I can travel with it. But then other women are like, "No, I want to get it as natural as I can." So it's whatever fits into your lifestyle to make sure that you are actually being consistent in the usage.
1: And do you have a recommended time where you recommend L-theanine is in the afternoon? I often do my matcha. Because I like a little bit, I like a little caffeine. I love that it binds to the antioxidants. So it's released slowly over time, but I'll do my coffee in the morning. And then if I really do feel like I need a little something to kind of just keep me focused throughout the afternoon and it's not sugar, you know, because you know we fall victim to that two to 4 p.m. slot where we need something to get us through the rest of the day. And that's usually when I'll make an iced matcha, like an unsweetened iced matcha latte, because I know it's got high dose L-theanine plus obviously the catechins and all the other benefits that matcha brings to the table. And I know it's not gonna just like light me up in terms of too much caffeine hitting the system. Yeah. So I tell
0: women that if they are gonna do matcha, then they wanna be aware of the caffeine and they have to do it earlier. Well, I'd say later afternoon, earlier than what you would do if you're using a pill form. If you're using L-theanine in a pill form, I tell women 45 to 30 minutes before they need to be in bed, relaxed, to sleep. Because then you have the half-life, it gets in, it gets into the system, but you wouldn't want to be drinking matcha half an hour before you get to bed.
1: Absolutely. I My cutoff's at 2 p.m., but I, I feel like I can, as long as it's before 2, I've got, I got bandwidth and everyone's got sensitivities. You should know like what you have bandwidth for. And, and so I just kind of wanted to share a little bit about my own end of one experiment on that. Have you tried blue spirulina? I have, I do. I take it.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I do that with almond milk in the afternoon.
1: It's also a great option. And then I do, I am obsessed with adaptogens. I love rhodiola. I love, I love holy basil. We make holy basil iced tea at the house. I do not make rhodiola like tea. I, I take it in capsule form. I take ashwagandha in capsule form. Um, I love schisandra as well. And so I know that these are phenomenal for helping, to, again, to modulate that stress response system, but also more so for, I, I love rhodiola for the energy, like especially the mental energy boost. Like that's where I really feel Like, I need the most support is the mental capacity, the cognitive focus, because I am making so many freaking decisions about it. Like my, my son's pre- preschool agenda, or maybe he needs new shoes or, or, you know, what's in the fridge for dinner and i or I need to run my company over here. You know, there's just so many things that are constantly happening for us. Like I walk outside of my office and I see all the things that need to be done in my household. Like that, just the bandwidth that is required of us, especially in perimenopause. I, I think perimenopausal women are the busiest women, you know, in a time where everything just feels like it hits the fan at the same time. And so. Right. Because you're having all
0: those changes in the body, but you're, like you said, you're also the busiest. You either have young kids or you have teenagers and the parents, you have business, you're like kind of at the peak of your career or getting more responsibilities in your career. And you never take time to be like, Oh, okay, hold on a second. So you're so, and that's the other reason why I love a Just like you, it's like, you know, that Shishandra Rodeola is going to help you get rid of that Mental fatigue to be able to have more manners. Um And ashagandha, like you said, it helps with stress and cortisol. They're fantastic.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I, and I know that, you know, recommended try one at a time, kind of figure out what works best for you. But if you're looking for the high energy ones, we just talked about those briefly. And then I want to saunter over to the topic that everyone's struggling with, but no one really wants to own, I find. And that is sleep. And that is. <laughs> yeah. Sleep, cause we are so freaking busy. I mean, by the time I get my little one to bed, it's nine, and it's time for me to go to bed. Basically, whatever day I have, it's over, you know. And so, and then you know, and I, and I think a lot of us don't realize that sleep starts when we wake up in the morning, like when we reset those circadian rhythms. Like, how are we setting ourselves up for success as we end, as we head into the into nighttime, as we head into sleep? But then also, you know, I have to give myself a good forty five minutes to really wind down to get that deep restful sleep and so i would i would love for you to speak on some of the recommendations that you have found helpful for women when sleep starts to sleep starts to really feel like it gets to be so it gets hard and then we wake up exhausted yeah
0: cuz when we're having the changes in our hormones we're also having changes in serotonin and melatonin production we also see oscillation in our core temperature so we're getting closer to that awake temperature instead of the ability to get into the slow wave sleep we also have less slow wave sleep as we get older. People don't exactly know why it just happens in both men and women. But when we're in this period of postmenopause state and we're in this tired but wired, we all have a very difficult time getting into that parasympathetic. So we look at sleep hygiene, where we're staying away from screens, or we're trying to wind down. You're reading in bed and nothing else. A weighted blanket, cool room. And then, when people are doing all of those things and still not working, that's when we start looking at like healthy and, eating, and We're looking at other adaptogens. We're drinking cold tart cherry juice a half an hour before bed to help with melatonin production. We're also um, like really trying to—I know this sounds funny—but a sleep divorce, trying a sleep divorce, where if you're sharing a bed with a partner who keeps waking you up and you have all these awakenings, could be that you need to have a couple of nights by yourself in another bed. And it's just so that your body can get back into the sink of sleeping well. Um, I have other um, women who are very sensitive to noise at this time. So they're getting like the sleep prescribed earplugs. And so they don't hear. It's just the small little noises that will wake them up, even if they're using a white sound device. So there are small little things that as an individual, you, you can try to really eliminate what is the biggest issue with your sleep. Is it sleep onset? You have a hard time falling asleep. Okay, well, let's back it up and see what kinds of things we can do to reduce your core temperature, make the brain stop going round and round in circles. Are you someone who's very sensitive and wake up a lot over the course of the night? Let's see what is the room temperature. Are you sleeping hot or not? Let's try some earplugs. So it becomes very individual based on what's happening. But a lot of people don't realize that they can take control. Of that. They're just like, I had another really bad night's sleep great. Now what? It's like, okay, well, let's, let's dig in and see what part of the sleep is not going well.
1: Perfect. And have you found that the increase in stress also compounds, um, our inability to really produce that amount of melatonin? Have you found that to be a situation as well? So do you usually recommend stress, you know, stress relieving strategies to help aid in sleep as well? I, I find that we can be carrying over too much cortisol into our evening. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And that's where I was talking earlier about trying to do some mindfulness stuff every day and being able to carry that back in. Because if we have that and we're having difficulty sleeping because we have elevated stress and cortisol, being able to really bring that parasympathetic response into action will really help enable you to fall asleep and stay asleep.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Okay. The other question I wanted to ask is about lifting heavy. You do such a great job of articulating this in the books and Yes. And women are still under the mindset that lifting heavy weights is a no-go. And so I would love for you to just educate us right now on why this becomes so critical, not only for our muscle, but also for our metabolic health, our cardiovascular health, and our brain health. And so, yeah, I I would love for you to plead the case because I think a lot of women are thinking, well, maybe I can get away with not doing this. (laughs) Yeah, no, you can't. Like
0: I said, lifting heavy is not just a training block. It's like how you phase into it. So if you haven't done any resistance training, you start with body weight, that's still heavy lifting to you. If you go to failure, because we're looking at adaptations from an external stress. And I say that because when we look specifically at estrogen, we see how tightly tied it is to our skeletal muscle and central nervous system. And as we start to have fluctuations in that, we stop getting signals for producing lean mass and having strength and power. When we stop getting those signals and we're not having as much strength and power, it feeds forward again to less gut diversity, less gut bug diversity. So for lifting heavy, we're looking at it as a central nervous system because when we do have estrogen, estrogen is responsible for like stimulating lean mass from a satellite cell or basal cell level. It's responsible for how strong myosin binds to actin. So those are your two main filament proteins that pull the fibers together for contraction. It's also responsible for how much acetylcholine is at the gap junction. So you have a nerve that comes down and that impulse has to skip over this little gap to hit the muscle fibers. And acetylcholine is what is released to carry that nerve impulse over to that muscle in order for it to get stimulated to contract. And it's responsible for how strong that contraction is. So we don't have estrogen, then we lose that whole circle. So when we're lifting heavy, we're getting a central nervous system response where the nerve is like, oh my gosh, I need more acetylcholine to be able to jump this, to be able to stimulate those muscle fibers. Then you get more acetylcholine in those vesicles without estrogen. It also jumps over and goes, oh, I need to really, I need to be able to recruit a lot of fibers and have them really contract strongly. So I better be able to recruit more fibers and have myosin and actin bond strongly. So that signal starts happening without estrogen. And then the other aspect is, okay, you have this and we have to overcome the load. We need more mass to overcome that. So then your body's like, okay, we need to build more lean mass. When we're looking at strength training from a gut health perspective, it changes the diversity to feed forward to have more autoimmunity of the central nervous system. So we have less impact on autoimmune diseases. We have less impact on perhaps getting a, a viral f- infection in the brainstem because the central nervous system is now like, I know how to fight off this stuff from these uh, signals from our gut bugs. We also see it feeds forward to not only improving BDNF production, which is good for you know, brain volume, but because it's such a neural input and we are having new motor patterns, we're seeing more neural growth. So that helps attenuate dementia, and Alzheimer's. So the resistance training isn't just about the mass. It's about the gut health and the brain health. And you don't want to be a frail woman walking down and the street when you're 70 and you accidentally step off the curb wrong and break your hip. We see better proprioception and reaction time with resistance training, especially the power base. We're seeing more research coming out in 70 and 80 year old women that instead of the 10 to 15 reps on the machines, they're actually being made to do the one to six reps of their relative 80% one rep max. And it's feeding forward to increase lean mass, better proprioception, better cognition, better reaction time. And it's all because of the change of the type of resistance training.
1: Right. So we're basically telling the brain because we don't have estrogen helping and aiding that communication like we used to. Now we really need to wake up the brain and tell the brain, Hey, We're serious about muscle contraction. We're serious about we need more lean mass here to make this happen. And that's really our only way of really preserving our muscle as we head into menopause.
0: Yep, and bone as well, because now you're having different stressors on the bone, which then increases bone density and that cell turnover that we tend to lose when we hit menopause. So basically what we're doing is we're looking for an external stress to put on the body, to curate all those metabolic changes. I hope
1: everyone heard that. (laughs) That's what I want to try to say. And you won't get bulky. That's the other thing. You're not, oh, absolutely no, you're not going to get bulky. If anything, this is an opportunity to change body composition. Exactly. Yeah. In the direction that you want. I know one of the things that you had said, as well as some of the benefits, is that we are in a, we can go into a thermogenic state here. And that's what women want to hear. Like this is <laughs> that's the positive. It's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. You want to change your body comp? You want to be stronger? You got to go with resistance training.
0: I see so many women in their late forties, early fifties. Like we have one hill down here. It's called the Mount, and it's say it's about a thousand meter or a thousand foot climb, and people are always trying to run up and down and spend time running and running. I'm like, you know what, if you were just to do a couple of intervals and then get into the weight room, you would see all the changes and adaptations that you want.
1: Exactly. It's, that's what we believe. I know my mom has, when, when she turned 50, she'll be 63 this year. When she turned 50, she decided, you know, she wanted to change her composition, but she chose marathons and half marathons. And I was like, that's not how you do it. Um, and so she's now on. I don't know how many she's ran. Uh, I, I, over a hundred half marathons, and I think probably twenty marathons at this point. She's running the Dublin Marathon later on this year. I think this may be her last one. But I was like, Mom, this isn't you know. And and then I, we're seeing we're seeing signs of insulin resistance and other things. And I'm like, this isn't how we get it done like i i don't know how i don't know how i can tell you this over and over and over again that this is not how we're going to change your body composition but this especially isn't going to help with insulin resistance and and cardiovascular health down the road and if we are trying to preserve your or increase your health span it has to be resistance training and it's a lot less time spent than you spending hours running miles every single week and so i just wanted to share that because i see that in my own mom and i'm so grateful that she's still moving and doing what she does but not in a way that's efficiently getting her what she wants
0: right right women are already designed to go long and slow you need something else that's going to be a stress to create a change
1: and then the other thing I wanted to focus on, I'm trying to remember because I read the books um, late last year, but did you spend any time, Stacey, or can you spend a little bit of time on mitochondrial health? And are there things that you recommend to women? Because obviously fatigue is another big one. Low energy fatigue, not just the mental fatigue, but just the physical fatigue. And obviously resistance training and fueling our bodies is going to get us there. But you know, what if we've got a woman who is just like, I'm literally on the ground. Like The idea of even doing those yet is just not in, not where I'm at. And I usually start women with Dapagins as well, but I'm really interested in how do we increase mitochondrial output or, you know, or kind of reverse some of that dysfunction that's happening. Do you have any recommendations for women who are listening to this and want to implement some of these, but are just like, I don't have the energy to do this yet.
0: I know people are going, everyone's going to be like, what do you mean this next statement, but sprint interval training and people are like, what? What do you mean? I don't mean you're going out to the track and you're doing 400 reps. What I mean is you have stairs in your house. You're going to go as fast as you can for 20 seconds and then fully recover. There was this great article that was talking about recovery. And I was like, I need to upload that and plagiarize it, (laughs) but I'm not going to. I'm just going to reiterate it. So talking about recovery and when you're doing like high intensity intervals, like one to four, that's not what we're talking.
1: No, no, you're talking about sprint training,
0: sprint training and sprint training is as hard as you can for 30 seconds or less, but the recovery from that can be five to six minutes or longer because we're looking not only from a metabolic recovery, but a central nervous system recovery. So when women are like, I am so tired, I can't do anything. It's like, let's just try to do two 30 second intervals. And in between those, we're going to do some mobility. We might do some walking, whatever it is to fully recover. So it's just enough to kind of boost and get a a really strong response, central nervous system, metabolic response, but not enough to be depleting. And I think this is where a lot of women go wrong because they think they need to do the 45-minute spin class or the boot camp or the CrossFit or one of the classes that are touted as being high intensity interval training, all of those are so depleting and they don't actually do anything for metabolic health or overall health for women who are perimenopause and beyond. You have to really look at that polarization. So sprint interval training, or if you're gonna dial it back a little bit, true high intensity interval training where those intervals are one to four minutes max, and you're looking at 80% or more of your of your maximum capacity. And you can't hold that. So you're looking at a full warm-up and cool down session with the intervals of maybe 30 minutes at the most, right? For sprint interval, well, it could be 10 to 15 minutes with your warm-up and your cool down. Okay.
1: And how often do you recommend? I mean, obviously everyone's a little bit different, but how often are you recommending sprint intervals? Would this be twice a week, three times a week? I know we talked about not pushing it more than three times a week, potentially. So
0: when people are first starting out with sprint interval training, I'm like one time a week because if you're, and sprint doesn't mean running, it can be any kind of mode as long as you're going full gas for that 30 seconds or less. But because it is so intense and most people aren't used to pushing themselves that hard. It's like one time a week and then you build it up to two. If you're adding in high intensity interval training, that's when you end up with three in, interval sessions in, in a week. But that third one is not a sprint interval session. Because then it ends up being too depleting across the board, where each time you're going to go out, you're not going to get maximum effort. So then you just start falling into this modern intensity.
1: I recently had Kristen Holmes, who's the VP of human performance on the show. And we talked about recovery and, and um, sprint intervals and you know the insane metabolic benefit that women can get from it versus interval training. Um, high intensity interval training. And I I just, I'm so grateful that she really shed light on that. And really we focus a lot on recovery on the show. Yes. Because obviously that's what my audience was looking for, but I was, I'm so grateful that you are affirming this as a second time, because I I was hoping we were going to get into sprint training. It was going to be one of my last questions to ask. And I'm so grateful that you tied it into mitochondrial health as well. Um, So I so appreciate that. And I think that gives women a lot of hope that it doesn't have to be more than once a week. And honestly, I don't know if they could do it more than once a week, but like, it's really baby stepping them up until they've got that energy to do more.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing is we've all grown up in the whole era of calories in, calories out, Um, you know, Jane Fonda, fat burning, what's the no pain, no gain, that kind of stuff. And people need to realize that not every session has to be something where you feel absolutely completely depleted. What I want people to realize is when they're doing heavy lifting or sprint interval, they finish feeling good. They don't feel depleted. They don't feel wrecked. They feel more of a euphoric feeling, like what people used to talk about as a runner's high. But when you're actually tapping central nervous system and you are getting these strong impulses from sprint interval training, it's a positive endorphin and it's not a depleting feeling wrecked. And I think that's another mind shift for a lot of women who are in their forties and fifties and beyond is understanding that an exercise session doesn't mean smash yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, that was definitely my lesson this year in particular. And, and, and I think what you said is if after that workout, you're done for the day, that's a great indicator that that was, that you smashed, you smashed yourself. Like you, it was too hard and that you need to really roll that back and give yourself some days to recover and then try again, but at a much less intensity. Yeah. Remember, we have other things in our lives we need energy for. Yeah. we Are you kidding? Like all the things, right? All the things that we need energy for. And that's, that isn't the intention is that, you know, working out and training our body is not only helping to a- increase our health span down the road and help create that metabolic flexibility, but also for us to feel good. It's meant to feel good. You know, th- in the spring, I'll tell you what, a lot of it did not feel good. <laughs> it was just something like, I know. Okay, and then the um, the last question I wanted to ask you, and just kind of your stance on this as women are navigating perimenopause into menopause. And I will be very um, transparent right now, especially with my my brain injuries. Um, I am on bioidentical progesterone for two reasons: one, to reduce inflammation of the brain, but two, also uh, you know, breastfeeding for two and a half years. In early stage perimenopause, my progesterone levels were basically in the menopausal level. So I and I knew she probably wasn't coming back for me, not to the level that I needed her. She was basically gone. <laughs> She's like, you know what? That's what you get for having a baby and then breastfeeding for that long. And you know, and so I and I watched my mom s- suffer from really low levels of progesterone early on. So. I have no problem admitting that I am on a bioidentical progesterone, and that's one of the first hormones I am gonna be on for starting on and gonna be on for a while. And then the other hormone that we are on, I'm on right now as well is uh, my testosterone levels were had been tanked, so I am also on bioidentical testosterone. So I would love to hear, especially as more and more research is coming out about bioidenticals and you know what the result is of us losing these critical reproductive hormones kind of where do you land when it comes to bioidenticals? I look at it as you have
0: this whole table of resources that you can can use. And hormone therapy is part of that table of resources. And, and so some women need it, some women don't. And it's a very individual choice. Like I remember after I had my kid, all of my levels were completely gone. I was like postmenopausal. So I used testosterone to bring it back up. I've always had issues with testosterone fluctuating, right? And so it's one of those health things that you need, right? And when we're looking at it as a long-term fix, we're seeing more and more research coming out saying, you know, if you're starting hormone therapy in perimenopause and early postmenopause, the risks are really, really low. So benefits far outweigh the risks.
1: But when you start getting eight, 10 years away from menopause. And you had never been on bioidenticals at all. And your body has been offline with those reproductive hormones. It gets, it's a very different story. That's when it gets dicey.
0: And it comes from that conversation has been confused because of the two major studies that came out in the nineties. One was women's health initiative. And one was UK million women's study. UK study was done on young perimenopause to early postmenopausal women. WHI was done older, very far away, at least 65 years old, and you saw all these detriments. But that was the goal of the study. You see what happens if women didn't have hormones and you put them back on. But it got all misconstrued in the media that, oh my gosh, taking exogenous hormones is dangerous. People get put on oral contraceptive pills all the time,
1: right? I mean, I meet women all the time who are in menopause on hormonal birth control. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And and that's because they weren't told and you know, that their care was being mismanaged.
0: And you think about, it, it's like, well, part of the aging process and perimenopause is a downregulation of, of your estrogen progesterone receptors. So if you're going to start it late, those receptors are not working for you, but now it's like, okay, yeah, I need to taper down. I still need this because my body is looking for it. So if you're having significantly low levels and you're having all these major issues from it, it's definitely a conversation to have.
1: Okay. Yeah. I so appreciate that. I, you know, I'm a a big advocate of women not suffering needlessly. We've been suffering needlessly for so long. And, um, in a lot of women, their life isn't going to change even though they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And and I, I've just watched so many women suffer and and I knew coming into this, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like for me. And when I started to notice, you know, severe symptoms, uh, you know, five to seven days out before my period, I was like, I know this is progesterone. I don't, I don't, I don't even need a test for this. Like, but I obviously did. And, um, and I had a feeling testosterone was a, was a major player for me too. And I, as a mom, I, I, you know, I don't want to suffer needlessly. I want to, I want to be my best self for my family. I want to be my best self for myself and for the people that I show up for. And I find that, yeah, it is that, you know, pivotal point where, we kind of tell women to wait after perimenopause, even consider any of this. And I just think, you know, in some instances, we're really doing them a disservice. And so obviously I'm a big fan of, we need that metabolic foundation. You need good blood sugar. You need to be moving your body. You need to manage your stress. You need to get good quality sleep, that deep quality sleep that you deserve. And if the wheels are still falling off, it's time for us to look into some other things and some other tools. Exactly. And
0: unfortunately, I don't think the medical community looks at that because Haynes, just, you know, in their new guidelines said that exercise wasn't something that was beneficial. It's like, what, are you kidding me? Who put that in there? It's like, that's one of the first protocols. It's one of the t- first two pillars, nutrition and movement. I know. People are like, what do you mean? Exercise is like the magic pill that people should be taking, but no.
1: Especially when, I mean, I, mean, I, I look at all of the, you know, our, our, the stats in terms of chronic disease and we, cardiovascular disease, it's us, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, we we are, it's 67% of us. Autoimmune conditions, you know, just type 2 diabetes. I mean, we're missing the boat here. Something isn't right. We're not supporting women in this transition. And it's, it has, it's having detrimental effects where the big chunk of our, last part of our life where we have spent all this time working towards Now we're managing these chronic diseases that we didn't necessarily need to ever have to manage. And so that's why I'm so happy to have you on, because this is what it's about, is how do we navigate this and we increase our health span?
0: Exactly. Because when you look at the research, there isn't really perimenopausal research. They don't really start funding the research until women are sick and postmenopause. It's like, wait, we're looking at some of the newer research that's coming out and there's so much that we can do so that we don't end up in that sick population. And food and exercise tend to be the two big pillars where we can make an impact. And then you sprinkle all the other things that are needed on an individual basis.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Such a pleasure. Yeah. And I will be anything you so I'm going to be I'll have the books in the show notes. I'll have your website in the show notes. Anything else, Stacey, you would love for us to know that we need to plug into when it comes to the work you're doing in the world?
0: Uh, We updated Aurora. And it is coming out. Um, I know. I'm like, first it was October. No, first it was June. And then it was October. And now I think it's the end of November. But we've fully updated it. uh, So we have all the newest science
1: changes. We've evolved it. So I'm very excited that that new edition is coming. Amazing. Well, I will make sure to link. I know that the newest edition won't be there just yet, but I will make sure to link to the books so that they have them and, um, and t- to link to all of your, all of the things that go and find you. Oh, awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. I feel like we covered so much ground today and I am so grateful that Stacey graciously stayed longer to answer all of the questions that I had for her today. Oh my goodness, I had so many questions written down and ready to go. I was so prepared for this interview because I just wanted to just pull all of her amazing insight and research for you to know. After listening, what were some of your insights? Did a lot of what Dr. Sims talked about feel doable for you today? I know that it did for me. Oftentimes, after interviews like these, I feel hopeful that women are being focused on and their health is being taken seriously through the lens of female physiology. Now, if you loved what Dr. Sims had to share today about women thriving in a fed state or how to exercise to build metabolic health, I highly recommend her book, Next Level. I've read it twice so far, and it is such a valuable guide that will span decades of time. And that's what I love about a book like this is that We can always go back to it no matter what phase we are in, even within the perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause spectrum, right? Because even throughout these 40 plus years, we're going to constantly evolve and change and having this kind of cutting edge research can really help us navigate that with ease and grace. Now, I will have the book in the show notes along with the link to my giveaway, which ends in four days. So be sure to enter to win. And again, reach out to me on Instagram at D-R-M-A-R-I-Z-A and let me know what you think of the podcast name. Are you loving Energized with Dr. Marisa? And hopefully you are loving the new cover art as well. If you haven't gone to look at the cover art, it is up on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are played. Again, this was many, many months in the making and I'm just so grateful to bring it to you today. Until the next episode, have an amazing day.